Hey, everybody, it's Tommy Canale, and welcome back to Before the Lights podcast, the show that tells you how they made their mark. She appeared on The Roseanne Show, Larry King Live, is the author of the book, The Company She Keeps, one of Hollywood's most successful female commercial stunt drivers, who is also an actress and began as a getaway driver for the mob. She's involved in many charities and brings awareness to domestic abuse. A model, mafia wife, victim, but more importantly, a victor. Please welcome to the show, Georgia Durante. Georgia, welcome to Before the Lights. Hi, Tommy. This is going to be exciting. I, there's no way possible, people, that I can get Georgia's entire life in this podcast. It's just not going to happen. So you, <laughs> you need to go to the links right away and get the book, The Company She Keeps. But I'm going to do my best to try and take your life and put in a capsule of uh, this podcast. So let's go here. You know what? I mean, you, this is an hour show. I do have a podcast out called Wheel Woman if they want to hear the whole story. <laughs> and I have listened to that, which is fantastic. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. All right. At one time, you were a good Catholic girl who went to confession and enjoyed golfing and drag mm -hmm. racing. And when I say that, what comes to mind now these, these days? Uh, well, I haven't changed much. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you know, that's how I got my start with the with my driving career was my dad was a, a golf pro and uh, we had a, a, a golf course and he had all these electric carts that he used to rent out. And in the middle of the night, I would call my friends and I'd hotwire them and we would have drag races down the fairways. And we ended up on the greens many times. And my poor dad, he, now he, he, always, he always teases me, I want 10% of all your action because I paid dearly for your education. <laughs> I can only imagine the damage you did to the golf course. Oh, my God. I, cr I crashed so many golf carts. There was, we used to have these little bridges, you know, that were over a creek, mm -hmm. but they were wide enough to pull your, your golf cart uh, over. They weren't made for electric carts, but I would measure the wheelbase and measure the, the, the little bridge, and I would have like an inch on each side, and if I hit it perfect, then I could, I could make it. Well, I, I can't tell you how many I crashed before I got it perfect. <laughs> That's going to come back in handy as we go to your story. <laughs> Before the age of 20, you started modeling, were raped, involved with the mob, gave birth, and got married. You heard that, listeners. That was all before the age of 20. You began. Wow, you read the book. <laughs> <laughs> you began modeling at the age of 12 in Rochester, New York, which was the home of Kodak. You became the Kodak girl. And by the age of 17, you were considered the most photographed girl in the country. There were over 80,000 drugstores all over the world with your life-size cardboard cutout of you in a blue and white polka dot bikini. Is that surreal to you? Well, you know what? Um, Kodak was Kodak was a very uh, conservative company, and when that life size poster came out, it was the first time they ever used a bikini, 
And they were so worried about it that they actually airbrushed out my belly button. (laughs) 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 Yeah, no, um, it's really, it seems like yesterday. It really does. Um, Georgia, were those days for you, were you just like traveling and basically shaking hands and kissing babies? Uh, well, actually, you know, when they, they took that picture, I was pregnant. So by the time it came out, I was like nine months pregnant. Mm, Okay. (laughs) So I didn't do a lot of traveling, um, with, with, you know, being the Kodak girl, but, um, it really lasted just a lifetime. I mean, people still remember that, that Mm -hmm. picture. Um, I, I run into people that say they, you know, they stole it from, from the drugstore and they put it in the college dorms and people remember that. I can't believe it. Listeners, I'll put a link to the photo in the show notes so you can take a look at it as well. Well, I have a funny story about that because it came out in, uh, 1969 and when I was doing my book signing in, um, Rochester, New York. Um, the, the photographer who actually took that shot had a poster in his basement and he brought it and he stood it next to me, uh, during the signing. And this girl comes up and she's like 20 years old, maybe. And she's looking at the poster. She says, Oh, I remember that. And I'm looking at her. I said, honey, you weren't even born when we took this picture. <laughs> and she got very insulted. She says, but I remember it. She said, my brother had an antique store and he had one in there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if you want to be considered an antique. <laughs> Is it safe to say that you have a thirst for danger, adrenaline, and bad boys? Uh, that's pretty safe to say, but you know, I'm, I'm kind of weeding off of that a bit, um, as I get older. Um, I actually, uh, retired from the stunt driving business, uh, about 13 years ago. And, um, I adopted a little girl and she kind of keeps me sane. She's, she's 16 now. Mm. <laughs> and, uh, now what I do is, uh, I rent my home. Uh, for vacation people. Uh, I do events here. I do weddings here. I do filming. So I, I keep pretty busy and off the street. <laughs> That's good. Can you explain to my listeners who Georgia White and Georgia Black were or are? Well, okay. Georgia White is that soft, sweet, innocent side of me. I had so many traumatic things happened to me and and uh and i believe that georgia black was born the night of the rape and she was kind of my protector and kind of stepped in when georgia white couldn't handle something and that's and and georgia black has even kind of gone away at this point she she doesn't have to uh you know, help me out anymore because I'm not getting in these bad situations. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going we're gonna to touch on a few of them. What is your first memory of realizing the mafia was in your neighborhood? Oh, 
Always. I mean, I grew up in an area where I didn't know anyone who was not Italian until I was like 17 years old. And these guys were just the norm. You know, I mean, I, I didn't know there was another world out there. Um, in fact, I, you know, I would see I would see these bad guys doing good things for people. Um, like if, if somebody couldn't pay their rent or didn't have enough money for food, they were always there helping. And then I would see the cops doing shady things. And at that point in my life, I had a very distorted view of who the good guys and bad guys were. Mm, I can understand that. I can definitely understand growing up and seeing that where somebody that lives in a traditional neighborhood may not be able to relate to that, but I can completely understand how that happens. Yeah. At age 17, we've hit it on a couple of times. You were raped by your brother-in-law, but what did that, teach you about the violence of the mafia? Uh, well, he was not, he was not a, a mob guy. Um, but, but the mob kind of backed me up there and they wanted to have him killed. And I held this man's life on the tip of my tongue. All I had to do is say, yes, do it. And it would have been done. And um, I couldn't do that. I couldn't take somebody's life. I could never condone, condone the violence, ever. I understand. Then how did you become a getaway driver for the mob? Well, I was in an after-hour club um, in New York City with uh, <laughs> my friend. Which actually, was I used to work at this after-hour club because I was dating the owner. It was... Um, with uh, my girlfriend, Susie Q, which is a friend of ours, her mother. Okay. Uh, and, but this night I was working alone and I just set a drink down in front of this guy and he pulls out a gun and shoots the guy next to him. I'm five feet away and <laughs> everybody scattered. And, and Frankie, who I was dating, he was the owner of the club. He threw me the car keys and he says, Georgie girl, get the car, pull it up. And they got his body down two flights of stairs, and they threw him in the back seat, jumped in the car, and I got him to Bellevue Hospital in record time. I would see a cop; I knew I had to slow down, but we got him there. And then they just they pulled his body out of the car, left him on the sidewalk, beat the horn, and we took off. And the whole the whole time, I was like, I I had it together, and it was after we dropped him off that I kind of like freaked out. You know? I'm sure. <laughs> but anyway, um, all they talked about was, man, Georgie girl, can you drive a car? <laughs> right? It's those golf carts back in the day. <laughs> and, and, yeah. They, and they talked about how I drove the car for months, you know, and uh, it was the topic of conversation. Whenever we went into a bar or anything, you know, they would, you know, bring it up. And uh, then I went back to Rochester for a weekend, and I ran into Sammy G, who was the godfather of that area. Now, this guy had watched me grow up and kind of was my protector. And uh, anyway, he said, uh, Georgia, I need you to do me a favor. And I said, sure, Sammy, what do you want me to do? And he said, I need you to deliver a message for me. He says, if anybody finds out about this, they're going to find my body in the Genesee River. He said, you can't tell anyone about this. 
I said, no problem, you know. So he shows up at my door the next day with a sealed envelope. And I fly back to New York. And there's this black limousine waiting for me with this guy inside. And uh, they drive into Brooklyn and they and they park at the, the, the limo like two blocks away from the restaurant. And then we had to walk all the way to the restaurant. And I'm thinking, why, you know, why did they do that? But I didn't ask any questions. I knew better than to ask any questions. I get escorted into this back room and there's four guys sitting there waiting for me. And I'm introduced as Georgie girl. That's what they used to call me in New York. That was kind of my nickname. And so when I was introduced, this guy's eyebrow kind of raised up and um, he just looked at me like he recognized the name and the talk about the town, how, you know, how I drove the car that night. So I hand him the, the message. They open it and read it and they pass it to the next guy. And the one guy says to me, you tell Mr. G, he's going to have to meet with me in person. And I said, oh, wait a minute. I'm just a messenger. I have no idea what's in there, right? <laughs> so now I'm being escorted out of the restaurant. And the guy says to me, the old man really liked you. And I said, which old man? They were all old. <laughs> I'm like seven, <laughs> right? <laughs> so it turned out it was Carlo Gambino. Mm. No. At the time, he was the godfather. And um, anyway, he uh, they must have figured, you know, if Sammy could trust me with that message, they knew I could drive. I was appearing on covers of magazines. Who was going to ever suspect me, right? Mm-hmm. So they started using me to uh, pick up packages and, and deliver them in different places. And I would always deliver a lot of these packages to um, JFK airport to these guys in suits still never asking a question. But I later found out that these guys were the CIA and they were actually laundering the money for the CIA in foreign countries. And I always said the mob may have pulled the trigger, but the CIA loaded the gun. Love that line. So, yeah, when my when my book came out, somebody said, "Aren't you afraid of the you know the mob guys?" And no, I'm I'm really more afraid of the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> when you were being a courier for Carlo Gambino and delivering these message back and forth, were you still doing stuff for Sammy G? No, um, no, no, no. Uh, actually. Once I got to New York, you know, Rochester was kind of out of the, the, the whole deal. Um, but it kind of progressed. And, and it progressed to, uh, well, they called it pickup. And I assume what they were doing was, you know, breaking legs and doing whatever they had to do to get their VIG, which is the interest owed mm-hmm. to them. Um, and I would always wait around the corner. And one day they came out with their guns out and flung open the doors and jumped in and said, you know, step on it. <laughs> and then I heard sirens in the background. And, man, I knew I had to get away or somebody was going to die. And I did. And that was probably the worst thing I could have done because then they wanted to use me all the time. And I, you know, you just don't say no to these guys easily, especially if they've done favors for you. They expect you to be there for them, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
anyway, that answers your question, how I got into driving. <laughs> yes. Let me ask you this then, Georgia. What role did Sammy G play in your life? Well, I met Sammy when I was 12 years old. Uh, I was in a, in a restaurant called Skinny's with my girlfriend. We were sitting at the counter having some French fries and a Coke. And these two guys came up to us and started hitting on us very crudely. And we were like 12, 13, and we maybe looked a little older, but we were kids. And they were so crude. And this guy was sitting in a booth by himself overhearing this whole thing. And that was Sammy G. He gets up. He takes these two kids outside and beats the living hell out of them. And I remember looking out that picture window into the parking lot and watching this go on. And it was bloody and gory and, and you know, kind of made me sick. But yet I was, I was impressed that somebody would do that for my honor, you know. And he came back in and uh, introduced himself, and he says, if you ever need me, you know where to find me. Um, and he was just a young punk back then, but he ended up being a godfather of upstate New York. And uh, as I grew up and I would get into these bars, um, he would always be there to protect me. And I don't know, he just, he just took it upon himself to you know, watch over me. And then we used to, you we used to kid around with each other because I would always be on TV doing commercials or I was in the newspaper and he kid say, you know, you got me beat this week. (laughs) 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 Oh, that's a good one. (laughs) Georgia, you married into the mob and from a female point of view, we're in the mafia. Fridays were for the girlfriends and Saturday were for the wives. When right. you married into it, did you turn your head to this? No, no, I did not. Um, I uh, I had to deal with it, but I didn't turn my head to it. Um, I I got to a point. My my husband owned a nightclub that was a mob hangout, and uh, as we were dating, he was Prince Charming. As soon as we got married, he came, he became the, the Prince of Darkness. And all of a sudden, you know, I was not allowed in the club anymore. And, um, you know, when I would go down there, you know, guys would, you know, try to pick up on me and they never left there in one piece, you know. And so it was best for the people that I didn't go. But I would, I would, I had an apartment above the club and I used to look down at the parking lot and see, you know, who was coming and who was going and who was cheating on who and, um, you know, so, you know, I, I knew, I knew everything, but then that was Fridays and, you know, whatever he was doing inside, I couldn't see, but, uh, I imagine that he was messing around as they all do. Then is it fair to say in the mafia world, after you got married, you became quote unquote property? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I became a prisoner and he started to um, eliminate my time with my friends um, and my family little by little. Um, I just, I just became a prisoner and I never, um, I never really fell into, I don't know how to explain it. 
I always knew I was going to get out. I was going to get out, but how to do it was, was really the problem because if I did it, I had to stay away long enough for him to kind of get it through his head that I wasn't coming back, but he would always find me and the beating was so severe that it, it just, it was too scary to make that move, you know? On that then, can you talk to my listeners? I've listened to the podcast. I've read about it. Listeners haven't done this yet. The time your husband played Russian roulette with you and then hung you out the window by your ankles. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, because I threatened to leave, um, he put a gun to my head with one bullet in it. He whirled the trigger. So I didn't know where it was coming from. And uh, he actually pulled the trigger twice. And, um, and then the other time is when he held me out of the building by my ankles because I wanted to leave. So, yeah, it was, I, I knew that he had most likely killed people in the past and killing me was uh, something that he could do and not look back. How many times, Georgia, did, did you think he was going to kill you? Oh, my God. Well, I finally, you know, I got away from him in Las Vegas. And um, <clears throat> and I got a job in the, um, in the camera, what was it, the showroom, as a camera girl. Okay. And one of his friends saw me there and called him and told him where I was. And when I got off of work that night, I went to my car. And I started to open it, and I felt these fingers on my on my um, shoulders, and it was him. And I turned around, and he said, "Get in!" And oh god, I got in, and he's trying to talk me into coming back. And I'm saying, "No, I'm 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 happy. I'm finally happy. I just I want to be by myself. I don't want to be with you." He said, "Okay, okay, I'm going to do something to you. I'm going to do time for." And he starts driving out towards the desert. There was one light before it was nothing but pure desert. And as we're approaching the light, um, he's starting to slow down. And I knew if I didn't jump at that point that I'd be dead. And so I opened the door, jumped out, and I'm rolling on the pavement. I had hot pants on. (laughs) (laughs) My legs were all scraped up and and I look up and he's coming at me with the car in reverse trying to run me over and I rolled out of the way in the meantime the the, the light had changed from green back to red and there was a, there was a car sitting at the light and I jumped up and I just opened the car and jumped in and it was a, a woman and I said just take me where there's people please and she said does he have a gun and I said no and she did a Yui and headed towards the strip. And we got to near the Star, the Stardust Hotel, and there were five police cars sitting there. And she said, there's a cop. Do you want me to pull in? And when she asked that question, I knew that she had been in that situation before because the number one rule is you never call the cops. And so I said, yes, pull, pull over, right? So she lets me out of the car and takes off, and he's right behind us. And uh, I, I run up to the cop, and, and I'm 
all disheveled and my hair is like all over the place and, and I'm bleeding. My legs are bleeding. And I went up to the cop and I said, officer, now I knew, I knew not to say too much, but I just wanted to be safe. I said, officer, that's my car and I just want to go home. You know, please just, just let me get my car and I want to leave. And he gets out of the car and he's dressed in a suit and tie with diamond cufflinks. And uh, he looks like he just stepped off the cover of GQ magazine. Oh, so he, he followed you back. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. He walks up to the cop and takes him aside. And I overhear him saying, officer, he said, uh, her psychiatrist thought it would be best if we come to Vegas, but this isn't obviously working. And, and the cop turns to me and he says, lady, why don't you take your problems and go home? Mm. I screamed, home is not the direction I'm going. And I ripped off his name tag and I started <laughs> kicking him. So he would arrest me. And he did. But he ended up arresting him, too. And he really had no reason to arrest him. So he puts him in the front of the, the police car, and I'm in the back. And, um, and, and when they shut the door, Joe's telling me to shut my mouth. I don't know how these cops work, and I'll take care of this. And uh, So when the cop came back to the car, he said, Officer, he said, you know, what am I being arrested for? And he said, uh, vagrancy, public in- intoxication, and possession of a dangerous weapon. He's a dangerous weapon. And the cop had a billy club that he found underneath the seat of my car, which I had had there for protection. But they actually wrote his name on it so they would have something on him. Mm. And you could smell the, the um, magic marker, you know, that smell. <laughs> yep. The permanent and, magic marker. Yeah. And then, um, you know, he hadn't had anything to drink. They refused to give him a, a, um the sobriety test. Um, yeah. So anyway, I mean, the cop was just so pissed off and, and I had beaten him pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> so off to jail we went and I was safe for the night. See, so you eventually get away from him. Yep. But to make matters worse, now you're being stalked. <laughs> and then oh, yeah. and then the guy that's the stalker one day kidnaps your daughter and one another time or the same time he's waving a shotgun. I mean, yep. when I'm going through your life I'm like this is unbelievable. The stuff that's <laughs> happened to you from the age of 17 going up. So how did you Okay, first what was the day like when he kidnaps your daughter? And then how did you get rid of the stalker? Well, he, this guy would just, he would not leave me alone. And I had called the police several times, but back then that was in the, in the early seventies, mid seventies, they didn't have stalking laws. They just, you know, you put a report in and unless the guy killed you, they couldn't really do anything, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, my, uh, when I got home, my daughter wasn't, wasn't home. I lived right across the street from the, the school and, um, and I called the babysitter that lived downstairs to see if she was there and she wasn't there. And then I got a phone call and it was the stalker. And he says, 
I have your daughter. And um, he said, I'll bring her back if, if you talk to me. And so I said, well, bring her back. And so he brings her back and I, I send her down to the, the babysitters to stay there. And he's got this long box and he walks in and says, I have a present for you. And he opens the box and it's a, it's a shotgun. And he marches me upstairs to my bedroom and, um, and he says, he lays me down on the bed and I, and I start unbuttoning my blouse and I said, well, Steve, I said, you know, before I die or, you know, I don't even know what I said. Um, let me show you whatever. So he was like in such shock that I was actually going to let him make love to me that he put, he lays the, the gun down on the bed right next to me and starts dressing. And I grabbed the gun and, and I, and I pulled the trigger and it blew a hole. Oh, it was like about a, God, I don't know, a foot, a foot around in my, um, in my bedroom wall. I'll bet. And, but I knew now he couldn't, he couldn't use that because now there's no bullets in the gun. Right. And he was so shocked at that point of the sound was so loud. It gave me the opportunity to jump up and run out. And, uh, I got away and <laughs> now I got a, I got to get help from the mob, right? <laughs> so you call back to the mob. <laughs> yep. There's like, no, you know, the cops weren't going to help. I mean, I, I have so many times called the police on this guy. So I knew I had to take it in, into my own hands. Wait a minute. Let me stop you right there before you go on. I want you to, but something just kicked in my head here. It seems like the police were never on Georgie girl's side. No, you know, back then, you know, when I was going through all this, domestic violence stuff first of all you never call the cops but if you do they always side with the man there's no um there's no safe houses back then there's there were no books that you could buy to read about you know what actually happens during these domestic violence situations um okay what was the question no i forgot so you run out and now you got to call the mob okay so now they send me a hit mail and I, you know, I don't want the guy to die, but I want him to get the damn message. Right. <laughs> right. So anyway, um, now this guy picks me up from the airport. I, I, uh, I had gone back to Rochester and then once it was, it was in place that, you know, I would have someone there to protect me. I flew back and he's, waiting for me and he's got this at this this little suitcase with him we get back into my apartment and he had broken into my apartment and there were uh, all all of my plants he's poured clorox in and they were all dead um when i went upstairs in my closet he had taken one piece of every suit that i had and used the scissors to him all the pillows, the feathers were all over the place. And this this hitman is looking around. He says, this guy is one sick mother, you know, <laughs> ever. And <laughs> he's going to deserve what he gets. 
And I said, well, what is he going to get? And he said, <laughs> He's not going to well, get ice cream. <laughs> he, said, he said, well, it's up to you. He said, any way you want to go. And I said, well, I don't want him dead, but I want him beaten bad enough to get the message. So anyway, now he opens up the suitcase and he's got all these guns in there, the silencers and all, you know, all these different contraptions he's putting together. And, uh, and we ordered a pizza, right? And there's a knock at the door. So Al gets behind the, the door with, with his gun and tells me to open it. Right. And, uh, I open it and it's the pizza guy. <laughs> <laughs> I gave him a hundred dollar bill told to keep the change. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to come back your place more often. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, now he does show up. Right. And I had the lock, the, you know, the chain lock on the door and I opened the door and I said, Steve, go away. And I just want to talk to you. I just want to talk to you. And he busts open the door and L's behind the door. And as soon as he comes in, they, they, they start fighting. And L was a big guy, but he was no slouch. He was a pretty big guy, too. And they went all around the room. Things were being knocked over. And, um, and then finally, he was... Uh, He's on the ground, he's bleeding, he's got a broken jaw, broken nose, broken ribs, and he's just laying there. And boy, I I always think about this this moment in my life and think I I was getting as demented as they all were. I picked this man's head up by his tie and I had a lit cigarette in my hand and I shoved it down his wrote that's how angry i was with this guy but i think about that moment and say oh my god i'm i'm thinking like them now you know and it really scared me it really scared me well al dragged him out of the room and i and down the stairs and his head kept bouncing on the step as he was pulling him out (laughs) (laughs) And anyway, um, two days later, my phone rings again, and it's him again. You got He's calling the hospital, and he must have had the nurse hold the phone to to his ear because everything was broken. And what he says is, "I still love you. <laughs> I understand why you did what you did." <laughs> oh my God! I should have let him die. Oh my God! <laughs> He's not going to go away. <laughs> How did you shed this guy? The FBI. He went to the FBI and he told them that I had all this information on the mob. If, if, uh, if they, if, if they would talk to me, um, and I gave them all that information if they would put him and I together in Europe and change our names so we could be together. And the FBI fell for it. Right? Oh, man. Well, it, yeah, it just so happened that they had a case going and they couldn't believe it. Lamadola's wife's going to talk to us, right? So they pick me up and they're interrogating me. And, 
and then um, I don't know anything. I don't know. I don't know. And they're saying, well, Steve said, and I looked at him and I said, Steve, I said, you guys must have an IQ three points below plant life if you believe that guy. (laughs) There you go, George. Just hit him right between the eyes with it. (laughs) And And they were like really taken back and and now they're so pissed at him now because a whole year's investigation is blown because now I know and I can warn these people what's going on, right? So now they want to work with me to get him. (laughs) 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 And that's, that's how we got him. That's how we got him. He ended up going to jail. Um, they, uh, they actually had approached him. Uh, he was coming out of his house and, um, they had their guns out and he thought they were the mob that was after him. And he starts shooting at the FBI. And that's how they got <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. George, is it yeah. safe to say then the better portion of your life from the age of 17 to 30 was lived in fear? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But you know what? Exciting. It was exciting. (laughs) (laughs) I guess if you want to call all that exciting, sure. (laughs) How, let me ask you this then. How has that lifetime that you spent in the mafia helped you today in your present life or did it? Oh, you know what? It's like, nobody can really put anything past me. It's almost like, uh, you know, I could always call somebody to take care of things, right? Sure. <laughs> um, but um, it's really uh, it's really made me tough in business, not letting anybody get away with any any crap, you know. Whether I have now, most of my friends in the mob are all dead now, but I still feel uh, the strength that they gave me, mm. you know. Mm-hmm. How did you go from? getaway driver to Hollywood stunt driver? Well, I, uh, I came out to California running from the mob, running from my husband, you know, and, um, I, uh, I actually lived in my car. I had $7 in my pocket and my seven-year-old daughter. And, uh, I, I finally found a friend that, that, uh, I used to model with in New York and, he allowed me and my daughter to stay in his little studio apartment. We slept on the couch and I couldn't, you know, I couldn't call anybody for help. Um, couldn't let anybody know where I was and I had to do something to make money, but I couldn't model cause they'd figure out where I was. You know, they saw any national thing that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm held held up in his apartment and I'm watching TV every day trying to figure this out. It seemed like every time there was a commercial, it was a car commercial. Then I started to really pay attention to it and realize you could never see the driver. I said, "That's perfect. I could do that, right?" <laughs> <laughs> and um, my friend was an actor and he would tell me where they were shooting car commercials. And I would show up on the sets and I would just bug these directors and they would look at me like, hmm, sure, I'm sure she can drive, uh-huh. <laughs> right? right? And I couldn't tell on my resume, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Let me show you what and I really I, drove for. 
Anyway, this one director just got so tired of seeing me. He said, okay, I'm going to give you a shot. Show up on Tuesday. We'll see what you can do. At the time, they were putting wigs on guys. You know, women just weren't doing that kind of thing. And uh, I showed up on Tuesday, and he was impressed. And he kept hiring me and telling other directors about me. And then they started hiring me. And before, before I knew it, I was turning down work. I couldn't do it all. And I said, geez, if I could just clone myself, I could be a millionaire. And that's that's what I did. I, I went after good-looking women who could drive, race car drivers, stunt women. Um, and, you know, you got to have men, too, because there's a lot more work for men than there was for women at the time. So uh, I pulled together a driving team, Bobby Unser Jr., Dar Robinson. Um, Dar was a great stuntman. Uh and I trained everybody in, in precision, and I came out of the gate with, uh, I mean, a fantastic driving team. And it took off. And now I, I went from living in, in the car to a 5,000-square-foot home. <laughs> you, know? you did stunts for over six episodes of Melrose Place from 1996 and 1997. Oh, you've done your homework. I have. <laughs> <laughs> But what was the stunt that basically stopped you from being a stunt driver? Well, that was actually a commercial. Okay. That was a a couple of commercials. There was a Bugle Boy Jeans commercial that I did. I was doubling the actress, and she had long black hair, and I had this this thick black wig on, and it was um, driving a vintage Dino Ferrari. And um, it's the one where the the, um, the good-looking guy pulls up in a jeep next to the next to the Ferrari, and he says, "Excuse me, are those bugle boys?" Or do I say that? I I say that to him. Um, are those bugle boy jeans you're wearing? And no, maybe it was the other way around. And he says, "Well, yes, they are." So I do a 180 and go back the other way. Well, when I do the 180, the back tire caught the soft shoulder. It was a narrow road, and it flipped the car over this embankment, and it was summersawing to a 300-foot drop-off into the ocean. Mm. And all I kept thinking about as I'm summersawing to my death is, oh, my God, I'm wrecking a $250,000 car. It was not my life didn't pass in front of me, all those things that say, that they say happen when you're facing death. It was all about the car, you know? <laughs> and it stopped 40 feet short of going over the cliff. And it was, I was like trapped inside and all I could hear was this, like it was going to blow up, right? <laughs> mm. And the the crew got down there and they flipped the car off of me and put me in an ambulance. And uh, I was uh, laying there thinking, why was the car important? Why didn't I think about my life? You know, mm-hmm. when I got back from um, location, I made an appointment with the therapist and I wanted to find out, you know, the reason for that. And the therapist said, I want you to get a journal and just write in it for 20 minutes a day, whatever comes to your mind. And I started doing that. And this other person came up 
which I called Georgia Black. And um, I had about 40 pages of this really raw journal, but they were like um, really traumatic things that had happened, you know. And then I started adding dialogue. And it turned into a book. <laughs> and I, I had no intention of writing a book. But when I saw that it was kind of going in that direction, I, I called Sydney Sheldon, who was a friend of mine. And I said, Sydney, I think I'm writing a book here. I said, but I don't know how to write. I said, can you suggest a ghostwriter? He said, send me what you got. So I sent him the raw journal. He calls me three days later and he says, Georgia, you don't need a ghostwriter. He said, you know how to tell a story. and You got a story to tell. He said, but what I would do is start from your childhood. Start when, you know, you were younger. Get the reader to know you and love you. So when they get to these parts, they'll forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, the first publishing company who saw it bought it within 23 hours. Wow. That's yeah. fantastic. The company she keeps.com go to the show notes and listeners get your hands on the book. Georgia, what injuries did you suffer on that rollover? Oh, well between that and then I had a head on a 70 mile an hour head on collision with Bobby Unser jr. So between the two of them, I had two operations on my neck and, uh, the doctor said, you know, if you continue this, you're going to be in a wheelchair. So I really had to, I had to quit. And, um, but, you know, God works in strange ways because that's when my little Angela came along and I ended up adopting her and I built her a playhouse that turned out to be $60,000 and now I don't have any income. <laughs> <laughs> so I started doing children's parties to pay for it. And somebody, um, said to me, would you do a wedding here? And I said, why not? And that blossomed into a whole other business now. The Enchanted Manor. Enchanted Manor. I'm going to put yep. a, we're putting all these links. We want people to check <laughs> all this stuff out for Georgia. Is the mob or Hollywood harder? Oh, gosh. Um, it's a toss-up. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, being a woman in a man's world, <clears throat> that was, uh, that was really, uh, that was really tough. I can imagine. I think both sides were, as I'm going through your, your life story, I'm, that question came to me because just as you said, you're a female that end up becoming the top precision stunt driving team in the country that, and you're doing stunts for Cindy Crawford. You break into that realm but the mafia is yeah. not easy either. Well, it's just, you know, it's, it's being a woman and having to prove yourself and, you know, especially in stunts and these guys are all macho guys, you know, and they have to take direction from a female, but you know, it, it took time, but the, you know, they gained the respect for me and it all, you know, it all worked out. How have you dealt with all the trauma that's happened in your life? Well, I never did deal with it until I wrote the book, mm. you know, that's when it all started coming to the surface because I, I never really thought about my life. I just kind of buried stuff, but that brought it all to the surface and, uh, and it made me understand. 
understand why I did this and why I did that. And I would reread the pages and say, oh, my gosh, you know, and looking back at it, you could see how it all happened. And the interesting thing that happened from that was so many women that were reading the book that were going through abusive relationships, they were seeing themselves on the pages and they were taking the steps to do what they needed to do to get out of their situation, which I didn't know was going to happen. With that book, to another level, explain the relationship with your daughter, Tony, and how the book brought you two closer than ever. Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, my daughter lived this with me, and I just assumed, you know, she knew. And we never really talked about what was going on, but she lived it, and she saw it, and, you know, she was there. Well, when she wrote, read my book, she could not get through a page without crying. She said, Mom, I remember when that happened, but I thought, and then I realized she saw this through a child's eyes. She did not understand what was really going on. And there were some resentments, you know, with her growing up. But then she understood, you know, when she read the book, what was really happening behind the scenes and the whys of everything. So that was really, that was really great. And I told her, you know what, you should write your book from your perspective. It's Mm. totally different, you know? Yes. Yes. And relationship today is really good. Oh yeah. Yeah. We're very close. You need to take your life and put this into a multi-season television series. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's happening. It is. happening. Yes. Sony just optioned it. um, And that's what they want to do. They want to do a um, three-season series. And um, right now, it's going through the lawyers. We're, you know, we're working out the money and all all the producing rights and all this stuff. But uh, it's in the works. Awesome. I cannot wait to see this. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I've been doing lately. I've been kind of writing, writing out every, um, every uh, not season, but every segment, what should be in every segment, you know. And, I mean, this thing could go on forever because, you know, you can't do this in a two-hour movie. You really can't. It's no. got to be a no, you cannot. And I've only touched on brief things on it, people. You really got to listen to the podcast and read the book. George, I would say after what I have read and listened to about your life that I would describe you as brave, resilient, and courageous. Yeah, I think that's, that, that says it. <laughs> <laughs> Hey listeners, I have recently released my YouTube channel called The Light. They are short inspirational videos to get you moving towards a greater you and a better life. New episodes come out every Monday and Friday, but only on YouTube. You can go to the show notes to click a link to get yourself directly to the channel. Please like, subscribe, comment, and share. Thank you so much. And enjoy. To close up here, when you look back at everything that we just kind of talked to and and went over, 
Is there one part of your life that you constantly go back to and think about more than the other? Um, yeah, I, I think about Frankie, Frankie and Frankie's all through my book. He was, he was the guy that owned the after hours club in New York. Um, he stayed in my life for 40 some years, you know, as good friends, you know, he'd come out here two, three times a year. And, um, (laughs) we, you know, we were, we were just close, not, not boyfriend, girlfriend anymore, but just, we loved each other. And, uh, he was coming out at Christmas and, um, and he he was going to make his plane reservations. And I said, Oh, Frankie, I said, I just met my real father and I invited him for Christmas. So now I don't have a room for you. He said, okay. He said, I'll come after Christmas then. He said, uh, I'll go to uh, the Dominican Republic. I got a buddy down there and I'll come after Christmas. So anyway, um, I had a cat named Shadow, right? So we hang up and he calls me about 10 minutes after that. And he said, um, he says, you know, Georgia, there's something I never told you. And I really think you should know. And I said, what? And he said, the only male I was ever jealous of in your bed was Shadow. And he hangs up the phone. (laughs) 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 And he goes to the Dominican Republic and he's there for like two days. This is not in my book because it happened after. And um, him and his buddy are crossing the street to go to this restaurant and he gets hit by a motorcycle. And uh, being a third third world country, you know, they're treating him for a fractured leg and he's telling his buddy, get me out of here, get me out of this place. So they take him home and uh, to his hotel at three o'clock in the morning, he had a brain injury and he died. Mm. And, uh, I think about that all the time. You know, I just, I, I miss, miss that friendship. Whenever he would come out here, um, he would out, always his buddies would follow him. They, somebody would fly in from New York or his brother would come in from Vegas. And, uh, there he had a couple that lived out here and they'd all come to my house on a Sunday and they'd be cooking the sauce. And at the time I was dating Chuck Woolery and I said, uh, well, Chuck, and I'm trying to explain to him who Frankie is. I said, you know, Frankie comes over, we're just friends and he comes every year. How do you feel about that? And he says, and, and Chuck was very religious and he said, well, he said it would give me a chance to minister to them. <laughs> so, so Chuck is having, he's having his coffee in the kitchen and the guys are cooking the sauce and they're kibitzing back and forth. And Dick says to Johnny, remember that guy we threw off the train? <laughs> and Johnny says, yeah, no way did he make it. <laughs> and Chuck has got his biggest saucers and I walked over to him and whispered in his ear, now would be the time to start ministering. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Georgia, thank you so much for your time and talking about your life and your book. And I really hope the uh, television series comes to fruition for you. And this has just been a blast, just kind of talking about what's happened a little bit in your life. Well, you know what? You were a great interviewer because you actually read the book and knew the questions to ask. Well, thank so. you. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. <laughs> Listeners, what I'd like you to do is follow me on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast. 
And in the links under this says before the lights, I want you to click the one that says bundles and those old extra five podcasts are on there. Those extra five minutes. So you can break them up into food and beverage, sports, music, entertainment, whatever you want. They are on there. You can click the link in the show notes to get them. Until next time, everybody, I'm Tommy Canale. And you know the saying, a salute, a chin chin. <laughs>